Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. This week on the podcast, we're pleased to present Apple, Tesla, Amazon, undervalued or not. A special presentation by Morningstar's chief U.S. market strategist, Dave Sakara. Welcome to Morningstar Classroom. My name is Dave Sakara, and I'm the chief U.S. market strategist here at Morningstar Research Services. Joining me today is Karen Wallace, director of investor education for Morningstar. First, I'm going to start off walking you through Morningstar's equity research valuation methodology, and then I'm going to talk to a couple of equity analysts about the stocks that they cover and specifically take a look at one stock that we think is overvalued, one that's undervalued, and one that's fairly valued, and how they use that investment thesis within our methodology in order to derive their fair value. Then I'll turn it over to Karen. Karen will walk you through some of the tools and screening capabilities on Morningstar.com in order to help you surface new investment ideas. And then finally, I'll wrap up the presentation by talking about where we think the market valuation is today and help provide you some ideas as far as what we think is undervalued and overvalued in today's market. So first, let me just provide a little bit of background about Morningstar. So Morningstar is one of the largest global independent providers of financial research and data. And we strive to be as transparent as possible with our products in order to be able to provide investors everything that we think that they need to know to be able to make informed investor decisions and help empower them to make the best investments for their specific situations. And finally, we're not traders here at Morningstar. We believe in investing for the long term. We find that the best investment outcomes are those investors that take actions investing for the long term as opposed to trading. So taking a look at Morningstar's equity research group, we have over 120 analysts located globally, and those analysts cover over 1,500 stocks across the world. Now, all of that is covered by one overarching methodology, and so we're consistent in how we take a look at stocks, no matter where those stocks or those companies are located. Now, taking a look at our coverage, we do have stocks in each of these different areas. Again, we cover over 1,500 companies. And here in the United States, we cover about 700 companies domestically. But then when you include the ADRs that trade for foreign stocks on U.S. exchanges, we cover about 800 companies. We do cover the gamut from large cap, mid cap, small cap, and we do cover all of the main sectors. Now, again, part of our job here is to make sure that we don't get caught up in the short-term market fluctuations, but really get past that and look into and delve into what we think the value of a stock is. So, for example, there are a multitude of different things that impact stock prices in the short term. So, for example, just think about market sentiment overall. Going into the late 90s, as we saw the technology bubble start you know, building itself up before it burst. Taking a look at you know, the mid-2000s, going into 2007 before the housing crisis and the global financial crisis, and again, markets you know, popping from that bubble thereafter. And then most recently, trying to really decipher what the long-term value of stocks were as we were going into the pandemic last year. So again, what's the long-term value of a company? Taking a look at those assumptions and those forecasts that drive the cash flows of those companies over the long term, and then being able to provide an adequate rate of return and using our weighted average cost of capital in order to discount those cash flows to today to be able to come up with our fair value estimates. So again, trading is not the same as investing. 
traders are going to look to capture short-term profits on the movement of a security. Now, there's a lot of different types of trading strategies out there. Most of them are probably based on specific momentum characteristics. They may include you know, some catalyst analysis as well. But for the most part, fundamentals really don't play that much of a factor in those trading strategies. Investors, however, are really doing that bottoms-up fundamental analysis on a company and its sector, and coming up with those forecasts and those projections as far as how much cash flow they think a company is going to be able to generate over the long term, and then coming up with the present value of that today. What we found for most investors, that really it's the time that you're in the market that leads to investor success as opposed to trying to time the market. Now, in our valuation methodology, we do start off with this bottoms-up fundamental analysis. We take that fundamental analysis, and then each of those analysts will end up building a discounted cash flow model in order to drive what they believe the fair value of that company is going to be, really looking at the intrinsic value of the company in and of itself. We then use that in order to come up with the individual stock price on that company that we think is fair value. And then on top of that, we have an uncertainty rating. That uncertainty rating is then used as an overlay to be able to drive how much margin of safety we would recommend investors should have from that fair value before they can start buying that stock you know, into their portfolios. And that's what then finally drives the Morningstar rating for stocks. This is a scale, one through five stars. So a one-star stock is one of those stocks that we believe is probably the most overvalued, and five-star stocks are going to be those stocks that we think are significantly undervalued. So with that, let's talk to a couple of different individual equity analysts, and let's learn from them. How did they use this valuation methodology, transform that into their investment thesis, and then take that investment thesis to be able to develop the fair value estimate on those stocks that they cover. So first, let's take a look at a stock that we think is undervalued in today's marketplace. So with me is Dan Romanoff, equity analyst in our technology team, to talk about Amazon. So Dan, could you just provide us a quick overview of what your investment thesis is on Amazon? Sure. Thanks, Dave, and no problem. Uh, so for Amazon, we see several secular themes coming into play here. The first is e-commerce. Uh, we think that uh, e-commerce really is still in the early innings of adoption by consumer, and I think the pandemic sort of accelerated that. So you see new categories coming online for the first time that consumers maybe weren't comfortable with before, and now they're buying groceries online and, and they're buying pharmacy uh, products online, you know, furniture, apparel, a couple other categories, too, that are sort of new newer to e-commerce. So I think that is just part of a secular trend. I think demand has been pulled forward by a couple of years in a transition to a more of an e-commerce world. You know, it's kind of uh, strange to hear that only 14% of retail revenues are done in an e-commerce manner. And I just, I think that is indicative of uh, how early on we are in this process still. And Amazon in in uh, that 14%, Amazon has 42% market share of that, and that keeps growing every year. So I see uh, more legs to that story. So from an e-commerce pers perspective, that is impressive. Uh, and then Amazon Prime sort of helps, you know, it helps grease the wheels a little bit and helps it make it more comfortable for consumers to to spend more money on Amazon as they get some benefits that you know non-prime members 
uh, do not get. So you get access to movies and, and other content. Um, and, and prime members tend to spend more. Uh, they tend to buy more categories. They tend to shop more frequently on Amazon. So, uh, that's sort of a nice virtuous circle that's created there. Um, and then, um, so that's the e-commerce part. And then sort of from the public cloud part, you have, uh, Amazon web services, AWS, uh, we think this is in the early innings here. Um, you had $45 billion in revenue last year, uh, from AWS, and that is, uh, growing very rapidly, you know, well above the corporate average. Uh, this is the highest margin segment that they are reporting separately. Um, and I think you know, we're in the early innings. You have strong growth ahead of you for years to come, and they are the clear leader in this in this category. So I think uh, that's going to help drive growth and profitability for years to come. And then lastly, uh, we have the other business, which is advertising, uh, mainly advertising. And this is a business that is also uh, significantly uh, outgrowing the rest of Amazon and has much higher margins as well. And if you think about it, you, what you have is... Um, shoppers who are looking for a specific product sort of immediately. And as they're doing their product searches, um, you know, this is very valuable to advertisers and, and probably more valuable than say something on uh, one of your internet browsers or, uh, you know, search engines or what have you. So, uh, so I think that's very attractive to advertisers and you get higher margins on this business. So, so generally speaking, uh, this should help propel growth and margin expansion, uh, over the long term for Amazon. So that's kind of the way we look at the company. So as an equity analyst, can you just walk us through how do you take Morningstar's equity valuation methodology, blend that with you know, your investment thesis on the stock and be able to drive what you think the fair value of that company is? Uh, sure. So, so we have a wide moat rating on Amazon, which sort of allows us to look at the company over a longer time frame. Uh, we, we have a 10-year explicit DCF uh, forecast. Uh, we model the growth, the revenue growth by segment. Uh, so some of, those, some of those categories we were just talking about, e-commerce, um, AWS, other, which is mainly advertising again. We model those out separately um, you know, from a long-term basis. Uh, so, we, you know, we factor in our assumptions there. We have approximately 11%, a compound annual growth rate of around 11% over the next 10 years uh, all in. Um, we see revenue growth slowing from loosely 25%, you know, down to uh, somewhere near 10% in 10 years. Uh, so that's kind of the way we're looking at the company overall. Obviously, the segments uh, differ a little bit in their growth profiles. Uh, and we model out our, expansion, our expectations for margin expansion. Um, you know, and we sort of go through the same methodology there, looking at it by segments, thinking about what they'll be investing in, um, what their needs are in terms of CapEx and anything they may be like building out in terms of programs. Like uh, most recently, they've been building out um, their uh, transportation network for like next day delivery. So uh, so that's an investment area. Um, so, you know, AW, so again, AWS and the advertising is sort of the fastest growth areas. Those have significantly higher margins, sort of 30% plus margins, uh, operating margins versus the rest of Amazon. Uh, so that's going to uplift margins for the entire company in our view. So that's kind of how we think about it financially over, uh, say, the long term. Now, based on that fair value estimate, you know, we currently rate the stock as a four-star stock, meaning that we think that it's undervalued in today's marketplace. What do you think the market is missing on this one? 
Um, so as so as I look at Amazon just on a financial basis, I see a couple of things as I compare it to say visible alpha consensus. I see we have a little bit higher growth expectations, a little bit higher margin expectations uh, over say the the medium term, say five years. So that's that's uh, definitely a factor there, and I think probably uh, realistically. Um, AWS and the advertising businesses are, are probably areas where we differentiate ourselves and we're probably um, more bullish, I would say, than uh, other investors. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dan. We really appreciate your time and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you. Next, let's take a look at a stock that we consider to be fairly valued. Joining me is Abhinav Davulari, who's an equity strategist on our technology team in Morningstar's equity research group to talk about Apple. Now, a lot of people might find it interesting that we assign Apple a narrow economic moat. I think most investors might consider that they would think that Apple should have a wide economic moat. Abhinav, could you give us a quick synopsis as far as why we assign the company only a narrow moat as opposed to a wide moat? Certainly. So Apple's narrow economic moat stems from its switching costs as well as intangible assets, specifically the switching costs around its walled garden for its iOS devices, namely the iPhone, iPad, and Mac, as well as intangible assets around its iOS operating system, as well as the experience that users get that's uh, not replicable uh, in in other uh, operating systems, for example, such as Android. So Apple has developed this very strong, I think, stickiness that makes it very difficult for users to switch away from those devices. And as such, we see a pretty comfortable 10-year horizon for excess returns. What prevents us from assigning a wide economic moat is primarily the fact that we do not have the confidence uh, in consumer hardware stickiness for a 20-year horizon. Given the short duration of the product cycles of Apple's devices, namely the iPhone, that could be anywhere from three to four years or even less in some cases, we think that there is too much risk of disruption to Apple's dominance in the smartphone hardware market, similar to what we've seen in the past with, say, a Nokia or a BlackBerry. Now, when I'm thinking about the Apple valuation and we start incorporating that narrow economic moat into your investment thesis, could you just provide us an overview of your valuation and maybe some of the main drivers that, that, that get to how we value that stock? Certainly. So our fair value estimate is $115 per share derived from a DCF valuation that explicitly for uh, models five years out into the future. And the main revenue drivers are certainly the iPhone. And in 2021, the new 5G iPhone 12 will be leading to significant double-digit growth in that sub-segment. The firm has also been experiencing really solid growth in the services and wearables sub-segments. And our expectation is that the iPhone will return to a more normalized sort of low to mid-single-digit level growth after this initial super cycle 5G iPhone. And then the other smaller sub-segments, such as services and wearables, will continue to drive a stronger, lower double-digit growth rate on average, culminating in an average revenue growth rate of in the mid-single digits uh, from from a mid-cycle standpoint. On the margin front, we we see margins, especially on the growth side, remaining in kind of the high 30 uh, percent range, whereas operating margins will also kind of plateau in kind of the high 20 percent range. And longer term, we think that there's going to be multiple puts and takes with respect to, to margins, such as uh, potential higher margins from a higher mix of services and software, but also potentially lower margins from uh, pressure on, on kind of the hardware side and, and more expensive components. 
as Apple tries to continue dominating the uh, the smartphone market with new features. Uh, but all in that kind of culminates in, in a relatively stable margin profile. And from an earnings perspective, we think that the firm will be able to generate kind of a slightly higher growth than its, than its mid single digit revenue growth uh, at about kind of the high single digit, maybe low double digit earnings growth on average uh, in our explicit five year forecast. Now, looking at Apple stock, it has fallen a little bit off of its recent highs. And as it's fallen, it's actually moved into that three-star category from a two-star category. So I'm curious, are there any specific areas in Apple that you think are different in how you look at the company versus how the market looks at the company? And what are you watching for some of those areas going forward? Yeah, there's two areas that I think we differ somewhat from the market. I think overall, overall our thesis is, is quite comparable. But Perhaps on the iPhone front, the recent str- strength and, and kind of super cycle of the 5G iPhone 12, we think that may slow down a little bit sooner than what the market and maybe some of our other uh, analyst peers are, are kind of contemplating. And then secondly, but maybe more importantly, from a long-term perspective, on the services front, Apple has generated a ton of revenue growth in recent years, particularly from the fee that it captures in, in the App Store. And we think that could be an area that begins to come under some regulatory pressure that could lead to some slower revenue growth longer term. But for now, you know, the firm is executing really well. They benefited a lot from the uh, kind of pandemic situation that led to a lot more demand for iPads and, and Macs with everyone working and learning from home. And as such, the near term, we think will we'll still quite be strong. Abhinav, thank you very much for your time this afternoon and providing your insights on Apple stock for us. Thank you. Next, let's turn to a stock that we consider to be overvalued in today's marketplace. Probably none is more hotly contested than Tesla. Joining me is David Whiston, equity strategist covering U.S. autos for Morningstar's equity research group. Tesla hit its highs earlier this year, but the stock has retreated since then, and it's now at the point where we currently rate the, the stock with two stars. David, could you just provide us a quick overview as far as why you think that stock is overvalued in today's marketplace? Well, there's there's really a, obviously a lot of controversy around Tesla, and it's it's really to me the ultimate story stock as to meaning it's not so really important how many vehicles does it deliver this quarter, for example. It, what really matters is what is this company going to look like in 2030 and 2040, um, and and there's a lot of debate around that. You first you've got CEO Elon Musk saying that uh, no later than 2030 they'll sell 20 million vehicles a year, while I model 28.4 million vehicles delivered cumulatively. Uh, between 2021 and 2030. Now, if you believe Musk, then the stock is actually undervalued as our fair value estimate at 20 million annual units a few years from now would be roughly in the area of $1,500 a share. But you have to assume utter domination by Tesla to do that. 20 million is roughly twice the size today of Toyota and all of VW Group. So given how much good BEV or BEV or all electric competition is finally coming Tesla's way, I'm not ready to give them the benefit of the doubt on 20 million units a year. Now, that said, I do model over 50% annual unit growth for each of 2021 to 2023. So in that vein, I'm in line with Tesla's guidance of at least 50% annual unit growth over a multi-year horizon. But I model growth slowing a lot sooner than Tesla talks about because of the competition looming. I have a revenue caker for 2030 versus 2020 revenue of about 24%. So what is all that other competition? Well, it's, it's a lot. And 
unlike in the past where you just saw automakers come out with these ugly econo boxes that could do say 110 miles of range. Um, now you've got some really formidable competition coming. Let's start with GM. They've got 30 BEVs by 2025 coming, making up at least 1 million units annually by then. You've already seen the Cadillac Lyra crossover get un unveiled, the GMC Hummer pickup and the GMC SUV uh, BEVs with their crab walk feature. And that's just the beginning. You, you They have two Bolt models as well. Um, I'm still crossing my fingers for a BEV Corvette someday and very soon we'll see the, the Bev uh, Silverado is coming. Ford's already got the Mustang Mach-E which I think is a solid although not perfect competitor to the Tesla Model Y. Ford's also unveiling their Bev F-150 this week called the Lightning and the F-150 remember that's a top-selling vehicle in America so Ford's making that a Bev and GM's making an all-electric full-size pickup that shows Detroit does not think EVs are a fad. Let's go over to Europe, Daimler's Mercedes and the EQS sedan that was uh, shown this year. The EQS interior is just, to me, absolutely gorgeous and luxurious. And then interiors is something I've been critical on Tesla about for a long time, because I just don't think they're up to par for what Tesla charges. Um, you know, if you don't believe me, go to an auto show, sit in a, a, a 7 Series or an S-Class or whatever it may be, an Audi A8, take a look, and then sit in a, a Model S. I just don't think they're that the Tesla's on par. And with the EQS for Mercedes, it has a lot of things that Tesla fans like to talk about. Both are futuristic, both are like a spaceship, both look amazing. Um, although I think the Mercedes, or at least cool, but I, I think the Mercedes looks amazing. Perhaps the Tesla just looks futuristic. I think the Mercedes is is the better choice on the interior. BMW, they're looking to do a target of at least 50% of their global unit volume be full electric by 2030 and 12 BEVs by 2025. VW Group, which is uh, coincidentally a big fan of Tesla, they're looking for 25% of their volume to be BEV by 2025. And Porsche alone wants about half their volume to be either plug-in hybrid or full electric. Honda's using GM's ultimate Altium battery technology for two BEVs that GM will then make for them in the North, for the North American market, or I think believe in the 2024 model year. And Honda's new CEO just said in April that uh, he wants 40% of Honda's uh, 2030 volume to be zero emission globally. Toyota this year, uh, they're still really focused on their hybrid expertise, but they've also said Lexus will sell more hybrid and electrified vehicles than combustion by 2025. Uh, and in the U.S., BEV and fuel cell electric will be 15% of Toyota's uh, 2030 U.S. volume. And globally, Toyota is looking to do 8 million electrified by 2030, with 2 million of that alone being BEV and fuel cell. So there, there's a lot of competition coming here. Now, on margins, um, you can perhaps argue I'm not giving Tesla uh, enough credit. And I, I think that's debatable. But over my 10-year forecast period, explicit forecast period, I've got EBIT margins, including stock option comp expense, mostly in the low teens with a 13% mid-cycle EBIT margin. And for perspective, to justify the current stock price of roughly $575, holding all else constant, I need a mid-cycle operating margin of about 24%, which I think is very generous without some help from non-traditional automaker businesses. Now, in addition to your views on the electric vehicles, you know, Tesla does have several other business lines as well. Could you provide an overview of how you include that and how you look at those as part of your equity valuation? Sure, so uh, a lot of different uh, irons in the fire, so to speak, some of which I'm I'm modeling, giving them credit for, and some I'm not yet. One I'm not modeling yet specifically is insurance. I just think it's too early to see where that goes. Um, and honestly, I just don't feel Tesla's market cap is where it is today because of them doing insurance. The energy business, I that I do model, it's 7% of our a fair value estimate. Now, some may argue that's too low, but I've been very generous on the growth on that segment, modeling its revenue going from about $2 billion in 2020 to $27.5 billion in 2030. Now, AVs or autonomous vehicles and robo-taxis, that's a very nebulous one because it's a market that doesn't yet exist. 
I've long had the opinion that robo taxis are a race to the bottom on pricing because long-term Tesla won't be the only ones doing this. There's Waymo, there's GM's Cruise, which I think is very underappreciated. Uh, Toyota is, in my opinion, probably doing a lot more on AVs than they're discussing publicly. Um, Ford and Volkswagen jointly own Argo, which and they've been testing uh, that business in many cities for a long time now, such as Miami. Daimler's been doing this for years too, and there's plenty of others, such as startups. So I think um, I just I don't want to assume Tesla achieving world domination on AVs and robot taxis, um, but I do model it. I assume in 2030 that Tesla has 10% market share of autonomous vehicle miles sold, and it's charging 25 cents a mile, which translates into only about 4% of the fair value estimate. So what I'm skeptical about, skeptical about with Tesla on AVs is, is really two things. Number one, do they really have full autonomy or what we call level five? And two, will too many people overstretch financially to buy a Tesla, thinking they'll make a lot of money putting it into, the, into Tesla's AV ride-hailing fleet? And then find out, uh, as I showed in a 2018 report, that demand for miles driven is not uniform throughout the day. It's more of a barbell in terms of peak times being 7 a.m. and 3 to 5 p.m., with 3 p.m. being the peak time in the United States. So what could happen there is somebody who thinks they'll make a lot of money leasing their car into the Tesla fleet may actually get turned away and then not make that much money. And then they've, they've got a problem because now they've perhaps got a vehicle that they can't afford or they're just not making as much as they uh, thought they could when they bought the vehicle. You know, and in addition, I was reading your research, and we do rate Tesla, and I believe we awarded the company a narrow economic moat last fall. So I'm curious, could you just provide us a synopsis? You know, what is the basis of that economic moat? So the moat that we awarded last October, it's two of the five moat sources in our moat framework, that being a cost advantage and intangible asset. The intangible asset in this case is around Tesla's brand and brand equity. Uh, I'll talk about cost first. So starting from scratch as a startup, that has enabled Tesla, I think, to build BEVs uh, from the ground up and create processes that legacy automakers may, fi may find hard to match. Um, Tesla talked at their battery day last fall about reducing costs by 56%, battery cell costs. Uh, specifically, and that's basically a lot of massive by massively vertically integrating themselves and, and introducing some new technology, uh, like the new cell technology they're talking about in, in uh, 4680. Um, other automakers may not ever catch Tesla in terms of cost or range, but it's possible, especially long term, that gap really may not matter that much. Um, just like today, there's tons of Android phones and iPhone smartphones and Windows uh, PCs versus Mac computers. Um, I, you know, Apple, for example, may, may be the more technically superior product, but the, the other competitors still do a lot of volume. So there really could be room for, for both to thrive here. And that, that still means Tesla could do well, but it doesn't necessarily mean Tesla is going to sell 20 million units a year. Time will tell. Now, the second source, as I mentioned, is, is the brand equity. I, I do expect Tesla to keep innovating to remain competitive, if not always a leader in attributes such as battery cost and range. And I think as long as Elon's there, that certainly helps the brand. Um, I think they were very smart to start at a premium price point and then have a celebrity CEO. And that, what that's done is it creates massive free advertising. It's also created a halo effect that benefits future Tesla vehicles after the Model S came out, such as the Model 3, the Model Y, and even in my opinion, that hideous though avant-garde looking Cybertruck that will go on sale soon. But Tesla's brand, this is part of the ironic appeal, I guess, Tesla's brand makes that ugly Cybertruck appealing to some people. And I think the Cybertruck's actually going to do pretty well, at least in cer certain circles, especially among very wealthy consumers. 
There's also the supercharger network uh, that has, I think, helped the brand too as it combats range anxiety and it's helped them uh, continue to grow and get some people to make that initial switch from ICE over or combustion over to pure electric. I think Tesla was smart to do the supercharger as a pioneer long-term though. Um, it may not be needed, um, but at, you know, at the end of the day, that, that would just probably mean some non-cash write-offs and, and you move on. So uh, Tesla does have an error moat, but it can still be an overvalued stock. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate your time this afternoon. Sure. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.